0: Good morning, good afternoon, everybody at St. Michael's Episcopal Church and anyone else listening. You are listening to episode 65 of Calm Words for Anxious Hearts, the podcast we started back in March of 2020 to give people a sense of calm and perspective and good theological grounding whenever the pandemic began. And we have just kept this thing going and we're in the midst of a great speaker series on the hope of resurrection. And today we're joined by uh, one of the most intelligent and faithful priests in the diocese and also one of my best friends in the entire world, the Reverend Patrick Hall. Now I've known Patrick for a really long time. We met at the University of Texas. We're part of the same campus ministry. We overlapped at Virginia Theological Seminary for two years and we have served together in the Diocese of Texas for 13 years. Patrick is a native Houstonian, and he loves that city, which he has described as a concrete mosquito palace. Um, He is very committed to Houston. He's currently the rector of Epiphany, and he began that post in 2019. Before that, he served as the Episcopal Chaplain to Rice, and also as an associate at Holy Spirit in Houston. And um, Patrick you are a dear friend and it's my uh, joy to talk to you today and also to introduce you to the people of st Michaels so thank you for being here
1: that's a pleasure to be here um, I'm so excited to get to do a podcast with you this is not our first podcast we've done together I think we filmed we filmed a little podcast for a, a thing I was doing for the daily cake you remember that 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 I don't think we ever actually aired but it was it was I was material. always
0: yes. I was always wondering what happened. That was actually so my podcast kidding. debut with the Daily <laughs> no Cake,
1: idea. and I, I uh, sent it off. I sent it off to the people of the Daily Cake, and I guess they just decided it was not a. You know, we, we didn't make the cut.
0: Well, uh, since then, I've risen to podcast fame. And um, by that, I mean, we've got a solid 100 listeners. And I hope that this is some redemption for you um, in order to speak to the people of St. Michael. So uh, the floor is yours. And thank you, um, Patrick, for being here.
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, So when John asked me to to do a, a reflection on on, on Easter and on the hope that comes with Easter, uh, I, it's it's one of those those situations where I have so much to say uh, and it's hard to figure out of all the things that I have to say what I want to say. Um, and that's because at least for me as a Christian person and as a priest, um, Easter is the very beating center of my faith. And I know for, for some people that beating center is somewhere else. For some people that beating center is the cross. Uh, but for me, the beating center is... The empty tomb, um, and my experience of Easter, my understanding of Easter, not only informs my faith, but but also, as I, I say in the video reflection I recorded earlier, um, really is the the thing that that allows me to get up in the morning, especially on days that are especially hard. And so that means that whenever um, we get new readings every, you know, we're we're on a three year cycle of Easter readings, and when those new readings come around every year. Uh, it's it's a difficult experience to preach because uh, I have so much to say about Easter. It's hard to figure out how to boil that down into something that is not just overwhelming uh, for the listener. So this year, our Easter readings, uh, our Easter gospel was from Mark. It was the what we call the original ending of Mark, which is the first eight verses of Mark's gospel. Um, and I, I always, whenever this comes around on Easter, have to explain that there are other passages of Mark uh, that follow uh, chapter 16, one through eight. There are two other endings uh, to Mark that are on some of the newer manuscripts, but the original ending of Mark ends with the women running away from the tomb, afraid and, and saying nothing after they encounter the angel in the tomb. And for me, um, this has always been, I think my favorite, my favorite Easter reading. And so it's just really been living with me all the way through the season of Easter this year. And I remember as I was working on my Easter sermon, really struggling to figure out uh, how, I wanted to, how I wanted to approach this reading. You know, I think one of the problems we have with the Easter hope, with the story of Jesus being resurrected, with the implications of Jesus's resurrection for all of our resurrections. I think one of the, the struggles we have with the story is that it's so familiar to us that it has lost the power to shock us to our core. And it's lost the power to shake us to our bones about what it means to live and about what we have always assumed to be true about the world. And that's why I love this reading from Mark 16, verses 1 through 8, because what happens to those women when they approach the empty tomb and they find the stone rolled away, they find the angel, and they begin to realize that Jesus has, in fact, come back from the dead. What happens to the women at that tomb is that they are destroyed not by bad news, but by good news. They are literally blown to pieces by news that is so good that they they just can't even conceive of how good it is. They can't conceive that what they are encountering could possibly be true. And that is that's the truth of Easter. Easter is news so good that it just blows all the windows and the doors off of our houses. And it makes it hard for us to figure out how to even orient ourselves on the world. But because we've been playing this game of telephone for 2000 years and we have been encountering the truth about Easter every single uh, March or April for the last 2000 years and because the, the good news about Easter has been mediated through an institution uh, that, that has sometimes stood in the way of the very truth that Easter seeks to communicate to us, some of, the, some of the edge of this moment has, has, been, has been worn off, has been worn off, has been dulled by years and years of use. And so I think Mark 16 helps us recapture some of that, that energy, some of the, the energy that Easter is supposed to generate for us. And so as I was, as I was approaching this, this text, thinking about what I was gonna say on Easter day, I was reminded of this experience I had in high school Um, and it it was at the time a a really powerful moment. Um, I had traveled to Germany with this dear friend of mine um, He's probably my best friend in the first couple years of high school. He was military so he was moving to Germany and so I I'd gone with him and his family as they relocated. His dad was a colonel in the air force and the reason that I had come along was in part because I, had, I think it was my first trip abroad, but also because my friend was really sad about moving. He had really made a home in Alabama where we were living at the time. And he was experiencing an unusual amount of sadness and grief about moving for a military kid. And I think his parents were hoping that if I came along for a couple of months, it might, it might salve that wound and make his pain a little better. So, so I went with him. And uh, the, the experience that, that I remember from this trip is not actually any of the travels, but this moment we had actually in his new house, You know, he was living in, in, in Air Force housing at Ramstein Air Force Base, paper thin walls between every one of the rooms in the house. And what he was really doing was processing unfinished business from his time in Montgomery. And the chief piece of unfinished business for him was this girl. This girl and her name was Caroline, which is the perfect name for a woman that you're going to use in the sermon illustration because it, I don't know why it has that sort of like, you know, Caroline is that name that you hear in bluegrass songs, right? It captures this kind of archetypal uh, I- energy of, 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 of femininity and, and that's, that's who Caroline was to my friend Ryan. And he he was deeply in love with this woman, uh, you know, in that way that you are un, in that uncomplicated hormone-driven way of, of being fifteen or sixteen. He was deeply in love with her, and he had never, he'd never been able to 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 screw up the courage to explain to her how he felt when they lived in the same town, and and she was military too. She had moved from from Montgomery, and she was, I think, living in South Carolina. But he just he just was 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 filled with regret and sadness about not having communicated to her how he felt. And so I kind of convinced him to do it. I was like, look, man, like you're living thousands of miles away. Like there's no risk. There's no downside now to doing this. It'll make you feel better. And, and I had always suspected that she had had feelings for him too. And so I, I had sort of suspected that if he just told her how, how he felt, she would reciprocate and, and, it, and it might be that, that thing that he needed to, to, to push him into an embrace of his new, of his new life. And so I, I kind of convinced him to do this thing. I kind of convinced him to tell her, obviously, you know, we're children of the internet, the early internet and everybody was on AOL instant messenger. That was like our main way of communicating. This is before text messages and, and maybe just like barely post dial up or in the, the late years of dial up internet. So he gets onto AOL and I'm there with him and she's there on AOL. And I'm like, look, you, you need to actually call her. You need to like start the conversation here, but you need to figure out what her phone number is and like call her long distance and just and just tell her how 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 you feel. Um and so he he started the conversation with her online. And I was able to just to just push him to the edge of where he was gonna like, you know, we'd rehearse what he would do. He'd say, like, hey, I've Something I want to talk to you about. Can I call you? What's your number in South Carolina? Like, like we figured out this whole thing that he was going to do, but he got right to the edge of doing it, and he just, he just panicked. He panicked, and he just ran. You know, these little, these Air Force housing, these were sort of shotgun homes, but his dad was a colonel, so it was, it was a bigger version of the Air Force shotgun home. So he like runs out of the room, and he like runs all the way to the other side of the house. And, and he begins begging me from the other side of the house to just communicate to Caroline how he felt uh, over, like, over instant messenger. Like he wanted me to mediate his deep feelings over a keyboard to this woman in South Carolina. And as I was reading Mark 16, one through eight, it, it occurred to me that there was this dovetailing. There was this incredibly human, this incredibly human uh, fear of being overwhelmed and a desire to, to experience good news in small drops, to experience good news mediated in such a way that it doesn't blow the windows off of our house and blow the door off of our house. And, and I think that's, that's what the women in, in Mark 16 are doing. They are so overwhelmed by what the angel has to say to them. And if what the angel says is true, their lives are never going to be the same, and the thought of that is so heavy that they run, that they run as fast as they can from this really good news. And We know, we know obviously that they eventually come around because um, there is a Christian church, right? So eventually they they come around and they, and they go and tell the, the apostles what they experienced. That happens off stage in Mark's gospel. But what I love about their reaction is that it captures the intense power that Easter has for us. The notion that death can be and will be undone. That notion is like a bomb that goes off in the human psyche and in the human community. It's crazy to think about how many conversations death has stopped, how many good ideas death has squelched, how much the order of human society is dependent upon trusting in the reality of the void, that people die and then they don't come back. And if that actually isn't how reality works, if death actually can be and will be undone, it's it's overwhelming to think about all of the voices that haven't truly been silenced forever, to think about all of the arguments that haven't ever actually been ended or resolved, to think about all of the regret and the loss and the estrangement that has been buried in the ground with our corpses and all of that is now in play again to be resolved and to be harmonized that's that's what easter means it, it's not just about jesus coming back from the dead it's about jesus coming back from the dead as paul says in first corinthians 15 as the first fruits as, as a sort of earnest money or a promise, an enacted living prophecy on God's part, that all of us will come back from the dead. And, and that's what overwhelms the women at the tomb. They obviously were good Jews. They knew about the idea of the general resurrection, that resurrection would come for all people. at The end of time, that was, that was part of the Jewish orthodoxy of their day. So Jesus returning to the, from the dead for them was not just about him coming back, but it was a validation, it was literal living proof that this crazy hope that, that Jews of the time had um, was actually gonna come true. And if that came true, then, then everything that stabilized and, and founded human society was up for grabs and was, and was gonna be undone. And we see that kind of chaotic energy play out in the early church. I mean, you think about Paul saying these radical things like, "In this space, there is no slave or free. There is no Jew. There is no Greek. There is no Gentile." The early church was 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 an embodiment of that complete and total, um, you know, uh, unsettling of human society that that the resurrection of the dead implies. And really, it takes like three centuries for the church to become something more conventional. For the first few centuries of the church's life, it's defined by this incredible freedom that comes with being a sort of people who truly believe that death is temporary and life is eternal. And and that's what Mark 16 captures. It's the beginning of, of that realization, settling in for the early church. And my hope for us as the church is that we can recapture some of that energy. So much of our society, so much of the way that we live is based on the assumption that death is real and that the finality of death is forever and that the void actually exists. But what our faith suggests to us and in fact forces upon us with texts like Mark 16 is that actually the void is an illusion And that the day will come when all of the things that have been swallowed by death's maw will be coughed back up on the shores of life. And that we'll all have to figure out what it means to live together when there is no possibility of killing each other again. What it means to live together when there is no means of silencing voices that are unwelcome. And that's justice. That's what justice is. So I often, my wife and I, we walk through Glenwood Cemetery in Houston. It's, uh, it's this gorgeous old cemetery. It's right by our house, which was built in 1883. The cemetery dates back to the, probably just after the Civil War. And it's, uh, it's a garden cemetery, like you know some of the really beautiful ones in New Orleans or, or in, in Charleston or in Savannah. Beautiful, giant old oak trees and, and it's, it's like a park so we we walk there pretty regularly maybe you know once a week we can just walk there from our house and i think often about all of the 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 grief and all the the human story that is buried in that cemetery and right now right now it's a place of quiet and of grief like you like you would expect from a cemetery but i think often about how on the day of resurrection that cemetery will be something else entirely it will be a crazy scene of incredible chaos and celebration it'll be a party it'll be a party but there will also be all of that tension and and everything else that 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 we thought was dead and buried but now is right back out in the open again to be to be processed and dealt with over the course of a loving and beneficent eternity so i think that's the image I want to leave to leave you with I think that is for me what Easter ultimately portends what it's about and why it it just fills me with excitement and gratitude to God and to Jesus for making this future something that we can look forward to and grasp
0: Patrick, thank you. That was really profound and deep and um, took lots of notes and really excited about our conversation. But first I just have to ask because uh, I will get questions if I don't ask this. Uh, did your friend and Caroline start dating? Okay. So
1: do you know, do you know the reason, and this was like the clever thing I did on, on Easter Sunday that no one figured out. I did the same thing with that story that Mark does with his gospel.
0: Well, yeah, and I don't like Mark's ending. So why don't you go ahead and give us the longer ending of the Caroline story, just like a tweet, you know, like uh, you know, did they yeah, date or know, no? Uh,
1: I I think they did. Yeah, I think they dated like long distance for a couple of years. Um, so it you know yeah worked out for for high school for high school standards, right? Like, uh, you know, um. So I was always very proud of that. I always, you know, made sure that he remembered whenever we chatted after he moved that I was responsible for for his wonderful love life. Like like you do when you're
0: a good friend, you know. Exactly. Yes. Always tell people how great you are. Yeah. Um yeah. Cool. okay. So I love I love the reflection. And I uh, also, all jokes aside, love the way that Mark's gospel ends and it's very intentional and um, you speak of tension after the resurrection. Whenever Mark is raised from the dead, he's going to find those people who wrote the other endings and say, you ruined my master <laughs> Why did you do this? Like I, I had them say nothing for a reason. Snakes, really? Snakes? Um, yeah. <laughs> is that the best you can do? But no, but I mean, I think that there's something, you know, because uh, we always want to say something about resurrection, but it occurs to me the power. I mean, you said that we lose we often forget how shocking it is, that it it leaves us speechless and that it it, it undoes us and that we are almost destroyed by good news. And one of the things that I just wonder, you know, want to hear your thoughts on is that the news is so good and it's so hopeful and we've all been formed in a world that basically tells us, you know, two things. Uh, Number one is there's only two things you can count on, death and taxes, right? That's the old joke that everyone loves to make, Uh, but you can count on death and kind of the subtext is death is final. And then the second thing we've all been told is that if it sounds too good to be true, then it probably is. And the idea that death is not final, the idea that God is preparing a wonderful, wonderful future Um, I wonder if you can just kind of speak to what it is about the human heart. We have a hard time taking that in um, because if we allow ourselves to take that in, it really will change everything. And I'm just curious, you know, what do you think about that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, one of the things I often say to my congregation is that to be human is to be something like a sentient water balloon. Wandering around in a world full of needles, um, and and that's that's our lived experience. Our lived experience is is as far from from the truth of resurrection as you can get. I mean, which isn't to say we don't have moments of true, um, you know, true access to God's presence that just knock us off our feet, but we do. But but in general, you know, our, our experience is one of managing scarcity. Our experience is one of of grappling with our own smallness and our own fragility, uh, grappling with the unpredictability of the people around us, right? I mean, um, human beings are unpredictable, the world is unpredictable and we don't know what's coming. And so, so what we learn, I think really early on is, is a, a posture of safety. Um, and that posture in, is sort of based on the notion that we don't, we don't really wanna write checks that we're not sure we can cash. Um, and so, you know, any, any human being um, who has lived in the world that we live in is naturally going to have experiences of doubt and skepticism when confronted with a claim as, as bold and unprecedented based on our lived experience as the resurrection is. Yeah. Um, and, and that's just normal. Uh, it's normal for me. I know it's normal for you. I think it's important to say that you know, even as faithful people who have pledged our lives to this gospel, that doesn't mean we don't have mornings where we wake up and have a really hard time uh, leaning on it and trusting trusting in the truth of it. Um, that's just part of part of being human, and, and it's a normal part of being a Christian person. Um, and that's that's why we have the the church, right? That's why we sort of we sort of bond bond together and we share this story with one another. Um, I often say to people who are grieving like, you know, there are moments when, when the church is gonna carry your faith for you. When, when all those other people who are saying the words with you on Sunday are believing on your behalf because right now you're hurting too much to believe on your own. Um, and, and I think what, what, what you're suggesting about, you know, how, how contrary this story is to our lived experience, that's why we have to be Christian in community because yeah. if we're if we're trying to, to trust in
0: the resurrection on our own out on an island we're going to last a week.
1: Yeah, we, we well, need each other.
0: Yeah, no and I mean I really appreciate you bringing in the the need of the church, the interdependence and the reality of human experience and it makes me think of that verse from the book of Hebrews where it says, "Let us run with perseverance the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus the pioneer and perfecter of our faith." But before it says that, right, because that can be interpreted as very individualistic. It says, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud cloud of witnesses, witnesses, let us run. And so that whole verse of let's persevere hinges upon that first clause, because we're surrounded by the church, by people who bear witness to a similar faith. That's what enables us um, to run with perseverance. You know, you talk about um, being human and and, and all of that um, and how they were silenced and destroyed by good news. And we'll get into this a little bit. I'm I'm really curious about some of your comments at the end connecting resurrection and justice. But um, so the resurrection is good news uh, to our soul, to the creation but there's a piece, I think, where it's kind of like bad news, uh, bad news to the part of us that really um, wants it to be about me and wants it to be about my wishes and my wants and me being the one in charge. And, um, and, and what I mean by that is there's a sense in which resurrection doesn't just undo death, it undoes all the rules of the old creation where you and I are competitors where it's okay to form tribes that form an identity over and against others, where I get to accumulate as many resources I want for myself without care for how many resources you have. I mean, basically so much of our experience is based on the rules of the old creation. And so even though it is wonderful news to say there is a new creation, there is a resurrection, um, Resurrection isn't really enhancement of our wishes or wants. It's something else, isn't it? Yeah. Right. Yes.
1: One hundred percent. It's basically the the drowning of our wishes and wants in communion with God. Um, uh, or or I and I, I say I'm not a universalist. I mean, or the other option is it's running. It's an, an eternal and constant running as far and fast as we can get from um, that sort of eternal communion with God. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I think in some ways, you know, the, I often, I'm often fascinated by how obsessed our culture is with zombies. Have you noticed this like zombies are everywhere and zombies are like, are like a weird photo negative of resurrection. It's like you're resurrected, but instead of being resurrected, you're like, basically, a your, your, your death is what is resurrected. Um, and I think in some ways, like, at the day, at the point of resurrection, there will be people who experience the resurrected world as a sort of zombie apocalypse. Um, <laughs> like, like there will be people for whom that incredibly good news is literally like the walking dead, right? Like that's how they will perceive, that's how they will perceive that reality. Um, and for all the reasons you name, like not only is is everything that, that we use to sort of, uh, prop up our lives and give them meaning rest, not only does, does all that stuff rest upon the culture, a culture of, of death, right? A culture of assuming death, but the, so too with all of our political realities, all of our economic realities, right? I mean, resurrection unwinds everything um, and and it pushes the entire world into an economy of grace that that almost all of us, even those of us who are deeply Christian people spend quite a bit of our time trying to wall ourselves off from. Um, And so to have those walls just exploded and to have uh, death undone will be, even for those of us who are faithful people, a profoundly traumatic experience. And for some people, it will be singularly traumatic. In other words, there will be nothing good about it, right? Um, Yeah. And there will be people, there will be people, you know, I know one of your favorite, favorite phrases is, you know, the, the Hebrews longing, longing for Egypt, longing, longing for their days in Egypt. And, and there probably will be people for whom the, the old creation in which the dead stay dead sounds like a better, sounds like a better world. Um, well, as I think tent- naming oh, that just to tell the truth.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I love that. And I have to say, I'm not going to succumb to this temptation. There is a great part of me that's tempted right now to throw away all my notes and just to talk about ghosts based on your last <laughs> comment, but we're not going to do that. Um, because what you're really talking about, you said you're not a universalist and, and, um, and, and what I, um, I think is important because I'm hearing you say this is that, you know, so often when we think of judgment, we think of like, you know, good people get to go to the party, bad people get an eternal timeout. But that's not what you're saying. You're saying that it's the same reality, but that whether or not we want it, whether or not we love it, whether or not we wish to submit to it and to be formed by it, that that's really the determining question. Um, a few metaphors come to mind. One is that of fire. Uh, and Dallas Willard, someone you and I have both read and love, says that the fires of heaven very well may be hotter than the fires of hell. And he quotes, you know, Hebrews, our God is a consuming fire. Basically the idea being this, there's one fire, does the fire refine or does that and purify and prepare and sharpen, or does that fire destroy? And uh, the other is uh, a great image that I get from Thomas Merton, the um, Catholic monk, trappist monkey wrote the reflections new seeds of contemplation but he basically says that each one of us is like wax and that over the course of our life through the choices we make through the loves we attach to that um we're always becoming softer and more malleable or we're becoming more hard and brittle and that on the day of judgment um that God will wish to seal us with his own seal, with our unique name, and that for the wax, it receives its true identity. It receives the shape that God wished to bestow upon it, and that for the hard wax, it just crumbles and breaks. And so it's it's one seal, but two different experiences. Now, obviously, these are just metaphors, but I think they get to the reality of what you're saying, that.
1: Yeah um, what 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 I love about the merton metaphor is that it is especially if that new seal is our true name the idea is that what god wishes is to is to gift us with our true self yeah but that but the 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 the, the container that we have spent our entire lives uh, authoring is is unable to receive it <clears throat> yeah. um, and I, I think that's a really good metaphor. I always go talk about the, you know, I, I, this the what I've just described is the about judgment is the classic C.S. Lewis position, um, and the way that he describes it is the doors to hell are locked from the inside, um, and that's the that's the way I think about I think about these things. Judgment is is ultimately that snap decision. Um, you're resurrected. Are you going to get married to God or not, right? Yeah. Um, or, or are you going to think about life? you know, as you said, living eternally in the second chair, right, eternally orbiting a, a much larger more luminescence, does that sound like hell to you? Um, and if it does, then God is kind enough to let you lock yourself in
0: the outer darkness. Um, well, so one of the places, though, because uh, I've always, you know, appreciated these metaphors, but also there's one place where they bother me. So I want to ask you a question about them. Uh, and if you don't have an answer, that's okay because I'm not sure I do either. Um, and that is where grace comes in, and and what 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 grace has to do with all of this? Because for those of you know you listening to the podcast, you know this is a very uh, intimate concept to me. It's it's uh, Paul, you know, uh, Patrick talked about the beating center of his faith, and and grace is up there for me. And we want to make sure that we don't turn resurrection into um, a Christian version of karma, right? Where you experience just the fruit of choices. And so any ideas where grace kind of factors into all of this?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think there are, there are a couple of ways. First of all, I would argue that hell itself is a grace. Mm -hmm. Um, in other words, um, that, that if you think about people who, who would find themselves in a cosmos that is now, actively merged with the active realm of God's self, right? Heaven and earth become one place, which is what happens on the day of resurrection. If you have people who, who are literally unable to exist in that reality um, and, and would find it to be a, a form of supreme torture, um, you know, God's uh, offering of them a sort of eternal existence in his absence is actually a form of grace. So I would say right, right at the outset, that's the, the first thing uh, that jumps out in terms of where grace factors into this. The second one of course, is that the life of a Christian person is not, not a life of stacking up our own right choices, but rather a life of opening ourselves increasingly, opening that aperture to God's grace to flow into our souls and then into the souls of others after overtopping our own. So, so the way to become someone who can be married to God isn't by turning yourself into a God, but rather learning in the here and now how to open ourselves up to God's grace and God's presence. Um, and, so, and so ultimately what happens in the, on the last day is, uh, is the culmination of our opening, right? It's the culmination of our, of, our, of our opening ourselves to God's grace so that that grace can overflow us. Um, and there's there's this is always sort of like that mystical tension right in the heart of, of Christian formation, which is we have, we have to say yes, and yet even our yes would be insufficient if that yes was not itself augmented by the action of grace. Um, and so I think it's best to just sort of leave that as kind of a mystery, right? To say that we have with this that that our participation is necessary because there can be no there can be no love where there is no participation, right? So our participation is necessary. And yet our participation is itself an outgrowth of the very grace uh, that, we, that, that, that makes that participation perfect. Um, and so I, I, just, I think you've just got to leave it there, right? And, and say that, that somehow our participation is required and yet our participation is not, the, is not the, the, the active ingredient, right, in
0: the mix. Well, and I think that fits with your use of Mark's text because it's not just the ending of Mark's gospel that has people Not saying anything, but for those who have read Mark, that's the messianic secret, go and tell no one. And of course, you know, Mark has, there's lots of speculation about why that's important to him. But in the context of this conversation about resurrection and judgment and grace, you know, what I'm hearing you say is we're not going to sort this out with our mind. We have to hold a lot of things together that are in a seeming tension but that sometimes we have an intuitive experience or insight or window into how all these things could be true at once and maybe we should heed marks words you know just don't talk about it because the moment you start talking about it you're really going to kind of screw things up <laughs> i mean there's wisdom yeah. there right uh, and just like yeah, hugely. Sometimes, sometimes we just need to keep our mouths shut about things you know i i i have
1: increasingly been discovering kind of the benefits of what I call um, ethical pragmatism, which is basically like learning how not to dwell in, in, in the abstract, but instead how to sort of like say less words about things. In other words, like like allow our experiences to be what they are and not not try to kind of evacuate those particular experiences into this realm of like, you know, of of, of the abstract where things take on a, a kind of Solidity that they never actually have in real life. Um, And I think this is one of those things, right? Like if you try to to sort of like create a model of grace in the abstract, it's gonna be hard to to create an account of grace that makes sufficient room for our own participation. Conversely, if you try to create a model of spiritual formation that is rooted in our own choices and participations, you're gonna end up struggling to create an abstract model that accurately captures how how insufficient those things are in comparison to the gift of grace. And so this is one of those things that makes sense if we, if we experience it and if we hold it at that level that is the closest to our lived experience. But the more we try to, to sort of create abstract models out of these things, the harder it's gonna
0: be for us to hold that tension. Really, really well said. Um, Okay, so you, you talked about ethical pragmatism, and, and I want to kind of shift the conversation towards the end of your talk on ethics and uh, talk a little bit about justice. And uh, I'm going to try and articulate this well. You, know, I, you and I have had some conversations about this before, um, but I find myself a little caught sometimes as a priest. Because on the one hand, I'm aware that there are many issues of societal inequality and places of injustice that I know that the church um, has a role in both diagnosing and healing, or at least being an instrument of, of, of grace and healing and justice that's in our baptismal covenant. Um, and yet, whenever I see intentional efforts to bring about justice in the world, Many times they are at best uh, clumsy and at worst uh, can be kind of counterproductive, part of a larger polarized fight um, where people kind of get very legitimate needs met in illegitimate ways, right? So their need to feel powerful or their need to feel connected to a tribe or their need to express anger. I mean, what better way to get those needs met than to form a group, find an enemy outside of ourselves, and then to have a lot of energy in um, in winning, you know, and kind of competing the same way that a football team would step onto the field. And, um, but what you said, or at least what I thought you said was that for the first three centuries of the church's life, that the church was very unconventional, that it was a place where men and women had equal standing in a world where that was just crazy, uh, where Greeks and Jews worshiped together, uh, when that was just not something that ever could have happened before the resurrection, um, where slaves were often treated as equals and as brothers But it wasn't part of a a big kind of um, strategic agenda of societal reform. It was the fruit of believing and embodying some of the things that you're talking about. So that's a little bit of word soup. But if you can help me and maybe our listeners sort that out, how do you see a justice? How do you see it practiced in our world that might not be great? And and how do you see justice tied to resurrection and people who believe in resurrection working for justice?
1: I think the the first step, uh, this kind of goes back to what we were just talking about, about that mix of our own participation and yet grace. The first step for any Christian person seeking to instantiate justice is is to have faith that justice has been and always will be already instantiated. In other words, the work of making justice real was completed on the cross. Uh, Easter is the is the living testament to that reality. And on the last day, the justice, the process of, of the creation of justice that began on the cross will 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 emerge fully flowered into the creation. And so as Christian people, what we're never doing. Uh, is bringing justice into being where it was not. What we're always doing is walking into a world that is caught up in the illusion of injustice and declaring the good news of justice to that world. Um, And I I think that's the most important thing to understand, right, there is a level of desperation, a level of, of false urgency and, uh, and it, that, that often characterizes political quests for justice and that desperation and that false urgency that often underwrites coercive treatment of, of people who are deemed as the, as the unjust or as the, as the other is, is rooted in, in an assumption that the void is real. In other words, um, we have to fix this now because if we don't, people are going to die and they're never coming back. We have to fix this now because if we don't, this community will be destroyed and it's never coming back. We have to fix this now because if we don't, this world is going to be destroyed and it's never coming back. So those ways of pursuing justice are just fundamentally unchristian because for the Christian person, the basis of our entire faith is that that community, those people, this world are incapable of disappearing forever. In other words, those things are held forever in the providence of a good and loving God. And in the last day, those things will be returned to us, perfected and redeemed, not because we have perfected and redeemed them, but because they have already been perfected and redeemed by the saving action of God. And so you can already see how dramatically differently uh, you would approach justice if you approached it from that position of faith. Um, Your approach to justice would, for one, be a lot softer because you wouldn't have this sort of need for expedience that causes us to to move in hard and coercive ways. Um, Your grief would not be all-consuming because even as you lost, you would know that your losses are ultimately outweighed by God's victory um, and that those losses are, are only footnotes in the story of God's ultimate victory in this quest. Um, and, and so I think that's the, the biggest difference, right? I think what, what causes our quests uh, for justice to become uh, dark and, and to, to shade into perhaps the actual commission of injustice and the quest for justice is ultimately uh, an inability to be, to be rid of the politics of the void, an inability to um, let go of the fear that the void is real, that death is permanent and that what's lost can never be regained. Um, but if we can root ourselves in the truth that death is not permanent, what's lost is never really lost, and that we've already regained what we think we've lost, if we can root ourselves in those truths, our quest for justice is transformed into something more like what was going on in the early church. Um, and so I, I think that would be would be the, is the most important piece of that story. Um, the second thing to say is that, you know, since the Constantinian era, it's been hard to tease apart the action of the church from from societal projects, right? Projects of, of society building. But I wanna say emphatically that the Christian quest for justice is not a form of society building. It's just not that. Um, for precisely the reasons that I just named, when you're society building, you're inevitably gonna get tied up in means of coercion, right? For a society to be built, people have to be moving in the same direction whether they wanna move in that direction or not. And that's gonna require you to do ugly and dark things to the people who don't wanna move in that direction. Um, and that's true of every kind of society building no matter how virtuous the impulse. Um, and that's not what the church is. The, society, the church is not uh, a factory for churning out good citizens. The church is not um, a means of creating a just and perfect society through uh, the technology of, of the human state or human culture. That's just not what it is. And so the early church understood that. Um, the early church understood that their job was to witness to the world what justice looked like by practicing it with one another around the Eucharistic table. Um, and that's what the church's work
0: is. Yeah, I mean, literally, it makes me think that the liturgy, I mean, it means the work of the people. Right. You know? And so there is a deep connection uh, or maybe even a, a double, maybe even the, the, uh, people coming together to the table uh, to drink of one cup and to eat of one loaf of bread. You know, it makes me think of what you said about Jesus being the first fruits. You know, maybe when we think of justice, if we really had to boil it down, maybe it's... Um, yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's embodying that pledge. It's living now and embodying now what we're confident will be later. Um, exactly. and, and I'm yeah. wondering if it might just be that easy or at least simple yeah. to understand, not easy, That's easy and that hard. Right. <laughs> right. Well, yeah. Patrick, this is, this has been so good. I've really, I mean, I could keep talking forever, but I'm also mindful of time. So I want to shift our conversation. Um, And, uh, you know, first is to say thank you for your great, really well thought out reflection and for the good conversation. I really enjoyed it. And it's a privilege to introduce you to the people of St. Michael's. Um, But I I end these podcasts by asking every person the same five questions. So you ready for the five questions? Yeah, let's do them. All right. So you only have to uh, just a sentence or two for each one. They're just kind of the, the John Newton rapid five. All right, Patrick, at the moment. Uh, what are you grateful for?
1: Oh man, um, I think I'm grateful for vaccines, right? I'm so grateful to be getting back to some pieces of my normal life, going to bars, seeing friends, not, not feeling dogged by the virus. Yeah, I'm super grateful for vaccines.
0: Great, I am too. Um, what are you less sure of right now than you were in your life or your ministry? But what are you less sure of um, compared to when the pandemic began in March of 2020? Um, at, at the risk of
1: sounding kind of depressed, I, I think I'm, I'm less sure of the road that we have to move forward together as Americans. I mean, I, I think we are, are living in two different realities right now, and it's unclear where the urge to merge those two realities into one single one is gonna come from.
0: And that's a, a sad place to be. That is a true word. So yeah, I get that. Um, okay, the other side of it, question number three, what are you more sure of?
1: I'm more sure of the church's role. Um, you know, I, 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 at Epiphany, I've, I've never been so, it's never been so clear to me how much the church matters to the people that it matters to. Um, then during the pandemic, we had so many people for whom it was very clear how much this place mattered to them and how much they missed it and how much they wanted it to persevere. So I'm, I'm sort of walking out of this pandemic, I think more confident about the future of the church. Whereas it seems like a lot of our peers are less confident. I'm like, oh man, like we might never Christendom is done, but that doesn't mean the church is going away. It just means that it becomes something, something different.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is a little bit of a, a side note, but in terms of the relevance of, you know, more challenging to the church or times of great prosperity and ease, right? Than pandemics. Yeah. 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 Okay. okay. Question number four. Um, in the past year, what book, movie, television show, song, anything uh, you can choose one art form has brought you a lot of sanity and/or peace?
1: Oh, that's a good question. Um, I think I would say the answer would be books. I have been going back and rereading or reading for the first time, I should say, a couple of books about uh, Houston's history, um, particularly a book about Houston in the 19th century about um, some of the yellow fever epidemics that struck Houston during that time. Um, And for whatever reason, being able to make sense of our current moment in the context of the larger story of people living in Southeast Texas actually gave me a lot of peace. Like I was like, wow, a lot of the people, uh, you know from who are our ancestors had been through exactly this kind of mess
0: before many, many, many times.
1: <laughs> yeah, And that,
0: that gave me some, some peace. Love it. Okay, final question. Uh, on the day of resurrection, whenever you see God, and you stand face to face with your creator, what do you wish to hear God say to you? I'm proud of you. Amen. Thank you. Patrick, thanks so much again for being with um, St. Michael's Episcopal Church. Thanks for your friendship. Thank you for your commitment to just really rigorous um, intellectual, spiritual reflection. This has been a lot of fun. And I'm really grateful for our friendship and grateful to introduce you to this church. It's been fun, Nate. Thanks for, for having me on.